I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So you, of course, remember the weird publicity stunt, Vladimir Putin, you know, riding the horseback while shirtless in Siberia, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to forget. Well, you know, we've been talking about doing this episode on Putin for a while now. And I was wondering, you know, like, has this guy always been one to put on a show? And it turns out just a few decades ago, he was actually known as somebody who worked quietly behind the scenes. Huh. If you go back to the early 90s, Putin was working for the first Democratic mayor of St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak. And when former colleagues were interviewed about working with Putin, they reportedly described him as the man to see if things needed to get done, but otherwise as somebody who kept a pretty low profile. Huh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And when Sobchak failed to get reelected, the new mayor reportedly tried to keep Putin on board. But Putin declined the job, saying it's better to be hanged for loyalty than rewarded for betrayal. I mean, I can definitely imagine that being a line that he'd use. I mean, especially these days as someone in power. Definitely. But this is what really got us wondering. I mean, how did Putin go from being this strong but low profile force to being this man we've seen in power for a couple of decades now in Russia? So that's what we're talking about today. Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, wearing one of his ridiculous t-shirts. I don't know how he gets these things. Does he have <laughs> them made? But this, I, I, I feel like I need to walk the audience through this one. This, this, it just, okay, here's what it is. It's got a drawing of Vladimir Putin, shirtless on horseback, horseback. of course standing on the roof of the Ritz Carlton in Moscow. <laughs> and the caption, what is it? The caption just says, Putin on the Ritz. <laughs> I know. It's such a long way to go for such a dumb joke, but that's why we love it. I mean, that dedication from Tristan to make these things, it's uh, pretty great. And, and and honestly, I'll take all the <laughs> levity we can get because today's show deals entirely with Vladimir Putin. And chances are you've heard his name a lot lately, perhaps a bit more than you'd care to. 
And the Russian president has been incredibly active on the world stage during the past few years. And much of that activity has been met with a combination of suspicion and outrage by the international community. You know, from alleged murders carried out in his command to, you know, the illegal annexation of Crimea to the interference in our country's own election. There's no question that Putin has been a very busy guy in the past few years. But beneath his icy demeanor and over-the-top displays of machismo, who is Putin, really? How did he rise to power in the first place? And what does he actually want? And so those are the kinds of questions we're going to be tackling today. Right. And to me, like one of the most crazy aspects of this whole Putin story is just how long he's been in power. I mean, I don't know if you realize this, but he's been in power for almost 20 years now. He first became the prime minister of Russia in 1999. And in the 19 years since, he's alternated between that role and the presidency multiple times. It is crazy. I mean, 1999, if you think about that, Bill Clinton was our president in 1999. So can you imagine if he had stayed in office all those years? Exactly. And, you know, two decades of continuous rule is pretty unheard of in democracies, though Russia's claim in a democracy has always been iffy at best, especially with mm-hmm. all the stories of corruption. Yeah, and that's true. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, why don't we go back to the beginning to a time when Russia made no pretense about being a democracy? So we're going back to 1952 when Putin was born. Now, the country at that point was obviously still known as the Soviet Union, and there was no waffling about what it was, which was a one-party socialist state. And Putin grew up under harsh realities of this system, and you know his family shared a communal-style apartment in Leningrad with, I think, two other families, and he was the only child of working-class parents. His mother was an auto worker, and his father was a decorated veteran and also a factory worker, I believe. I mean, it's so weird to think about baby Putin and even like teenage (laughs) Putin just being like so sullen. But It's uh, so weird to say baby Putin. (laughs) But what was he even like as a child? Do you know? Well, from everything I've read, he was just a typical kid from a pretty modest background. I think he was an average student in terms of grades and and maybe even somewhat of a troublemaker in class. There are stories you read about him always throwing erasers at his classmates and <laughs> blowing off his math homework. And oh, you know, then as a teenager, yeah, just a typical teenager, you know, that was throwing erasers at classmates. I guess that's what <laughs> the teenagers were doing at that point. But, you know, Putin noticed while he was a teenager that some of the other boys his age were bigger than he was. And so he started learning judo and sambo, which is a Soviet combat technique. And, and this was all in order to be able to defend himself. Yeah, I think we've all heard about his love of judo, but it's really funny that he co-authored a couple of books on the sport and even released like a silly instructional video. It was called Let's Learn Judo with Vladimir Putin. It came out in 2008. (laughs) (laughs) I thought about ordering a copy of it just for uh, for this episode, but then I thought, no, that's that's probably for the best that we not. But uh, but anyway, I'm I'm sure it was every kid's dream to be able to learn judo from Vladimir Putin. (laughs) So uh, obviously his childhood behavior and his manly exploits hinted at the things to come. But what about his political aspirations? Was Putin like interested in government as a kid? Well, kind of. Yeah. I mean, he developed a passion for spy novels and TV shows when he was still pretty young and so much so that he even visited the KGB headquarters while he was still in school. And he did this just to find out how he could join the agency. And so because of their advice, Putin attended Leningrad State University, started studying law there. And then once he graduated, he immediately started working in foreign intelligence for the KGB. Yeah. And as most of our audience knows, the KGB was a national security and intelligence agency. You know, most people think of it like the Soviet equivalent to the FBI or CIA, but really it's more like a combination of the two. Plus, it's got like a military and police component as well for good measure. 
Exactly. Well, as a young recruit, Putin had very little influence on policy and, and mostly was working as a spy recruiter instead at that point. Still, he gradually worked his way up to be a mid-level agent during his 16 years or so with the KGB. And it was close to the end of his time there that Putin experienced what many now consider to be a really defining moment in his life. So what happened then? Well, it was 1989 and Putin was stationed at a KGB office in Dresden, East Germany. And the Cold War was coming to a close and anti-communist protesters had started gathering in mass to call for the dismantling of the Berlin Wall. Well, one mob in particular had formed outside the KGB offices, and they were threatening to storm the building and boot out the communists who were holed up inside. And so Putin wanted to take action and fight back the mob. But actually, he was told that the KGB could do nothing until they'd received orders from Moscow. Huh. So in the meantime, Putin and the others started burning these piles after piles of sensitive documents just in case the protesters managed to get inside the building. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as they waited for word from Moscow, that word actually never came. That's crazy. So I'm sure Putin didn't appreciate Moscow just hanging him out to dry like that. Definitely. I mean, not at all. And he, he later reflected on this, saying the business of Moscow is silent. I got the feeling that the country no longer existed, that it had disappeared. It was clear that the union was ailing and that it had a terminal disease without a cure, a paralysis of power. Huh. Which, you know, must have been a hard pill for Putin to swallow I know that he grew up on the steady diet of Soviet propaganda and believing how strong and resilient the state was. And and now he gets this firsthand glimpse behind the Iron Curtain and sees what a farce it all is. Well, that's exactly right. And, and it wasn't long after the panic in Dresden that the Soviet Union collapsed completely. And so the country Putin had so proudly grown up in and and had served for all this time, it became a worldwide symbol of what not to do. A journalist named Ben Judah has this great book on Russia and Putin, and it's called Fragile Empire. And in it, he describes the impact of this Moscow silence incidents this way. He says, for Putin and his generation, those who did not come from intellectual families, who believed what they were told about the USSR's superpower success and didn't question propaganda or what they did not have, that moment was a defining scar. Yeah, and it certainly explains why Putin has been so hell-bent to restore Russia's superpower status and, you know, to make himself seem like such a strong man on the world stage. It's almost like he wants to take this uh, rose-tinted view of the country that he had as a child and, and turn it into a reality again. But here's the thing I don't get is how does, like, a middle-aged KGB agent turn into, I don't know, like a three- or potentially four-term president? Well, like with most great gigs like this, it's all about who you know. And in Putin's case, he had made you know quite a few political connections during his time as an intelligence agent. And one in particular was Anatoly Sobchak, who we mentioned earlier. And he'd been one of Putin's law professors at university and had gone on to become the mayor of Leningrad, which, of course, is what we call St. Petersburg today. Mm -hmm. So when Putin resigned from the KGB in 1991, Sobchak took him under his wing. He helped him navigate the political world, and, and this was during the collapse of the Soviet Union. He even gave Putin a job as his international affairs advisor. <laughs> Wait, so a city mayor has his own international affairs advisor? Well, it sounds a little strange to us, but, but major cities in Russia like, you know, St. Petersburg or Moscow, they really operate more like we would think of U.S. states operating here. And so they've got a great deal of independence and power within their own right, really. Okay, so uh, so Putin's working for the mayor while his country's being restructured all around him. That still seems like a long way off from the presidency. 
Well, and it was, but, you know, Putin worked his way from one civic office to the next until 1996. And this is when his pal Sobchak had been voted out as mayor. And at that point, Putin was already on good terms with one of Sobchak's close friends in government, and that was Boris Yeltsin, who we all remember as the first president of Russia. Mm -hmm. So Putin moved to Moscow in 1996. He started working for a government agency called the Presidential Property Management Department. Now, this was an agency tasked with moving all the assets of the former Soviet Union to this newly formed Russian Federation. You know, since there was no private ownership whatsoever in the previous communist state, that meant that there was a ton of property and all these natural resources to be able to divvy up at that point. So it was a huge task. But I mean, it also seems like this surefire recipe for corruption, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, the agency's officials could award oil drilling rights, military equipment, all these other valuable assets to whoever offered them the most in return. And in fact, most people speculate that this is where Putin started building his vast personal fortune, which I was blown away just in doing our research this week about this because it's thought to be in the tens of billions of dollars. I mean, I knew the guy was super rich, but tens of billions of dollars is what they estimate. That's ridiculous. Now it seems we're only three years out from Putin's first crack of the presidency. So tell us where he goes from here. All right. So Putin reconnects with his roots in the late 90s and joins the FSB. And and this is the replacement agency for the KGB. And so he quickly works his way up the ladder. And it's 1998. And President Yeltsin himself makes Putin the head of the FSB. Then less than a year after that, Yeltsin promotes Putin again by appointing him as the prime minister of Russia. Now, that's second only in command to the president in terms of rank there. But actually, that's not even it. On the very same day in August of 1999, Yeltsin also announced his hopes that Putin would be his presidential successor. But rather than waiting to see if the people of Russia would actually make that happen, Yeltsin made an unprecedented move. With just a few months left to go in his second term, Yeltsin stepped down as president. This was on New Year's Eve of 1999, and he named Putin as the acting president in his stead. And then Putin won his first official term in the March 2000 election, which actually, by the way, this was the first time in his political career that Putin actually ran for office. <laughs> That's crazy. And obviously, it's this rapid rise that doesn't feel that democratic. But uh, do we know why Yeltsin would take such extreme measures? Like, did he just have that much faith in Putin's leadership or his abilities or something? Well, Yeltsin was definitely impressed with Putin's performance, but the general consensus is that pushing him into this presidential position, it was really more of a way for Yeltsin to protect himself. Mm. So at the time, Russia was at war with these separatist forces in Chechnya, and, and they wanted their region to be independent rather than just another part of Russia. And the war wasn't going well for Russia by 1999, and Yeltsin's approval ratings were suffering as a result of this. And so the theory actually seems pretty credible, and especially when you consider that one of Putin's first acts as president was to grant Yeltsin immunity from all criminal or administrative investigations. <laughs> That's ridiculous. And I mean, it's funny because like people always talk about Putin being an enemy of government transparency. And this all seems pretty transparent to me. Seems like a pretty obvious move. And, you know, there are plenty of other telling actions that Putin took during the early years of his rule. But before we get into those, let's take a quick break. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't 
feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have a, one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about Vladimir Putin and his rise to power. All right, Mango, so so during Putin's first term as president, there was one incident that really kicked off this whole myth of Putin as, as kind of this, I don't know, like an unflappable man of action. And it happened back in 2002, and this was back when Russia was knee-deep in a second war with Chechnya. And a group of 40 Chechen militants raided this Moscow theater. Of course, we all remember this story, and and they managed to take more than 900 civilians hostage. The militants demanded that Russian forces be withdrawn from Chechnya and return for the hostages' release. But Putin actually refused to negotiate. And so the ensuing standoff dragged on for three days, at which point the Russian special forces stormed the theater. And so by the end of the ordeal, all 40 of the militants were dead, along with 129 of those hostages. 129 hostages. That's really horrible. But you're saying this actually helped build Putin's reputation? Yes, surprisingly it did. I mean, people abroad thought Putin's handling of the situation would actually cripple his domestic approval rating, but it actually had the opposite effect. And just looking at the changes in approval rating over a period of time here is, is pretty staggering. So 
you know, he had been looking at an approval rating of like 2% during his brief stint as prime minister, but his presidential ratings actually averaged in the low 60s before this Moscow hostage situation. And then after it, his approval rating soared to something like 83%. I mean, it was crazy wow. high. And the vast majority of Russians had responded positively to Putin's ruthless approach. So from then on, he started, you know, kind of like crafting this this public image as a strongman. And, you know, once I started looking into all these super manly photo ops, I was just struck by how ridiculous an image it all adds up to, like when you piece them together. I mean, you know, there are those famous photos of him, like flexing his muscles while arm wrestling or posing shirtless on horseback. But there are all these other excessively butch activities that he supposedly excels at, too. So in 2010, he went on an expedition with a group of marine biologists and shot a whale with a crossbow. You know, I mean, I guess there was a scientific purpose for this. The scientists could collect its skin samples for research. And in 2013, Putin dove 200 feet underwater to the bottom of the Gulf of Finland just to check out a 140-year-old shipwreck. I mean, when you piece all of this together, it it really is more like a caricature. Like, you know, Putin starts to sound like the old Dos dude, the most interesting (laughs) man in the world kind of thing. I mean, think about what you just said. Like, he shoots whales with crossbows and... (laughs) goes on these sunken shipwrecks and is a black belt judo master. I mean, the list just goes on and on. (laughs) I know, but it it is funny how often you can see the strings on a lot of these PR stunts and how manufactured they clearly are. What do you mean by that? So, uh, like, a good example is this archaeological discovery that Putin supposedly made while on a scuba diving trip in the Black Sea. So this was in 2011, and there was footage from the dive where Putin's holding these two pieces of a Greek urn that's said to be from the 6th century B.C., and... Putin looks at the camera and says, the boys and I found them. And it's in like two meters of clear water. Like It's, <laughs> it's just like floating there, uh, you know, the way that price like relics tended to. Yeah, that's the way it works. I mean, it, not only is this guy super macho, but he's apparently also insanely lucky, too, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And so the idea of stumbling across these ancient artifacts in a few feet of water, you know, there's obviously no way. So after three months of Russian blogs and independent media saying the same thing, Putin's chief spokesman finally admitted that the whole thing was staged for the cameras, except, you know, he was still trying to play it off as intentional. Like, just listen to this super defensive statement he made in an interview. So this is his quote. Look, Putin didn't find the jugs that had lain there for many thousands of years. It's obvious. Of course, they were found in the course of an expedition several weeks or days earlier. Of course, they were left there or placed there. It's completely normal. There's no reason to gloat about this and everything else. Like, he says, look, and of course, so many times in that statement. Yeah, I mean, don't you just love it when government officials say it's your fault for taking them at face value? I mean, suddenly, like, you're the idiot for thinking they actually meant what they said. Yeah, I mean, and that isn't the only time Putin's been, like, caught in a lie. There's evidence of him being photoshopped and, like, looking more cut as a result of it. And uh, there's also, during a visit to Siberia in 2013, he claimed to have caught a 46-pound pike while fishing. Which would actually make it one of the world's largest. (laughs) But, you know, the weight of the fish was never substantiated. And like all these eagle-eyed Russian anglers who saw the photos, they argued that Putin's catch probably only weighed about 20 pounds or so. Oh, so petty. Well, you know, Putin's bravado is definitely keeping with his authoritarian leanings. But one interesting idea I found in my research is that his obsession with his public image is, is actually partly a way to associate himself with other leaders in Russian history. Huh. I mean, that's an interesting idea, like, you know, putting him in line of this legacy. But but what do you mean exactly? Like, did Russian czars cheat at fishing? 
Well, not exactly, but back in 2014, there was a big celebration in Russia for Putin's 62nd birthday. And as part of the festivities, there was this art exposition in Moscow called the 12 Labors of Putin. <laughs> like like Hercules? Like the 12 Labors of Hercules? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So in Greek mythology, Hercules completes these 12 difficult tasks and becomes Greece's greatest hero in the process. But in the paintings, it's Putin facing this three-headed hydra with a sword and a shield in his hands. And <laughs> the painting is titled The Taming of the Cretan Bull. And it's just Putin in a toga straddling this giant bull. Yeah. So obviously this kind of naked propaganda is right up Putin's alley. But I'm guessing there's more to this imagery than just, you know, a pasty Russian guy wrestling a bull. <laughs> yeah, there are a few details in the painting that speak volumes about the situation. For for instance, the, the bull's forehead features the crest of Crimea, which you, know, you probably remember was illegally annexed by Russia in 2014. And ribbons bearing the Russian colors are wound around the bull's horn and, and held as reins by Putin. You know, now historically, the Crimean Peninsula has caught the attention of foreign rulers going back thousands and thousands of years. And just looking at the list of conquerors, it includes... Julius Caesar, Caligula, Justinian, a pair of Russian princes, huh. as well as others. And so, you know, with his own controversial coup back in 2014, Putin's just adding his name to this illustrious list as he would see it. That's crazy. I had no idea. But I mean, I guess it explains the Crimea connection. But why would uh, why would he do this thing like based on Hercules or Greek mythology? Like you said, Putin wanted to be associated with Russian rulers, right? Yeah, and many Russian czars have actually traced their roots back to ancient Greece. But maybe more broadly than that, this Russian-Greek connection is a way for Putin to legitimize these territorial claims and kind of cast himself as the inheritor of this long, proud history of of these larger-than-life figures, I guess. And th there's actually an article in Pacific Standard that describes the effect this way. It says, by looking to ancient Rome, Greece, and the reign of the czars, Putin continually works to wipe out the memory of the Soviet system that produced him. The elected president of Russia uses art, opera, and holiday pageantry to assert his lineage directly from czar's families and to justify his foreign policy in Crimea. Modeling on the strongest of them, he becomes a legend. That's really funny. And I, I guess it's like connecting him to the little stuff too, right? Like finding that Grecian urn, it, it's almost a subtle way to reinforce the association between him and Greek antiquity. Yeah, it was just lucky that he stumbled on it like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, you think about those desperate grabs at legitimacy, they, they become more frequent the longer Putin stays in power. And so his first two terms as president were, were controversial enough and, and all these corruption scandals and press crackdowns and even these alleged murders that we've read about. And, and since then, Putin's had a second stint as prime minister and then a return to the presidency for a third term. Now, this time it's for six years instead of four. Huh. So it, it actually kind of makes sense that Putin would come to depend more and more on these blatant PR stunts and, I guess, borrowed credibility and all that to try to help ease these concerns about his seemingly endless rule. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, but when I was looking up photos, I found this thing called the Teenage Putin Fan Club. And it's like <laughs> these photos from uh, earlier in his career. But it's kind of amazing because all these teenagers really took up the mantle of Putin and they started wearing like t-shirts and posters and identified themselves as like almost Putin's biggest fans. So actually let, let oh, me wow. pull a few quotes for you. This yeah. Is, yeah. This is from, uh, Vika Matarina 17. And she says, 
He is like God to me. In the fan club, we don't just sit around and look at his pictures. We participate in marches and exchange information about him. I wear a t-shirt with his portrait to school. I want everyone to know I'm his fan. Oh, gosh. And, and here's another one uh, from Yulia Pipilova, 18. I have five different t-shirts with Putin's portrait, several kinds of postcards with Vivi, which is Putin's nickname on them. We designed them ourselves. <laughs> wow. These are big fans. They yeah. seem, seem legit. I mean, it's a real commitment. But uh, I do want to talk a little more about, you know, the state of Putin's power today and who he really is underneath all that posturing. But before we dig in, let's take a quick break. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 
All right, Mango. So it's time to dish the dirt. Who is the real Vladimir Putin? It's it's, it's all on you to explain. <laughs> He's just a super sensitive guy, I think. <laughs> it seems like it. Well, I mean, the whole thing is it depends on who you ask, right? I, I mean, plenty of Russians would say he's a successful and capable leader. I mean, even if they stop short of believing that Putin's the pinnacle of manliness that he plays at being, they still might credit him for, you know, growing the economy or boosting the country's standing in the world. But many people outside of Russia and many others within would probably say that Putin's just another bully with a chip on his shoulder. I mean, do you remember that time in 2007 when Putin brought his giant black Labrador to an official meeting with Angela Merkel? Yeah, he actually, yeah. He actually knew that Merkel was afraid of dogs because uh, she'd been bitten by one a few years earlier. So bringing his lab was like this power play he used to try and scare her. It's pathetic. Yeah, I remember this. And actually, if I remember correctly, Merkel had a pretty strong reaction to this, right? Yeah, so I've actually jotted it down here. So when reporters questioned her afterwards, she broke down the reaction like this. Quote, I understand why he has to do this to prove he's a man. He's afraid of his own weakness. Russia has nothing. No successful politics or economy. All they have is this. <laughs> wow, that is a sick Merkel burn, as they call it, I think. <laughs> especially coming from a chancellor as well. Yeah, but I mean, it's also super insightful, right? Like, it's, it's this obvious show of aggression to mask his weakness and to make up for some perceived slight. And that's just got Putin written all over it. It's classic Putin <laughs> and cla- classic Merkel, too. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that that is kind of his M.O. I mean, for example, this month's cover story in The Atlantic lays out the idea that, you know, the 2016 Russian hacking was was actually just an emotional retaliation for the release of the Panama Papers a few years back. I mean, that's so crazy because you don't think of like Putin being emotional at all. Yeah, that's right. Uh, basically, the Panama Papers reveal that an old friend of Putin's, his, his name was Sergei uh, Roldugin, I believe. He, he had about two billion dollars in an account in his name. And this is kind of odd because Sergey was a professional cellist. And I haven't done the research to find out what most cellists make, but I don't think they typically have billions of dollars <laughs> lying around. But anyway, long story short on this one, journalists were able to show that Sergey's account was likely this communal piggy bank for Putin's inner circle. So, of course, the situation was super embarrassing to Putin and the Russian government and they perceived the report about Sergei as this personal attack, and, and they felt that it was orchestrated by the U.S. government. So Putin's spokesman, the same guy who made the statement about the Grecian urn stunt you were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. he blamed the Panama paper reporting on, quote, many former State Department and CIA employees who sought to destabilize Russia ahead of its parliamentary elections that September. Oh, wow. So like the DNC hacking and all the Russian trolls on Facebook, that this was all just like Putin's response to this attack on his favorite cellist? <laughs> I guess if you put it that way, it may sound a little bit weird, but I mean, pretty much. But according to a Russian journalist named Andrei Soldatov, Putin called this urgent meeting of his National Security Council the same week the Panama Papers came out. And this is likely when Putin gave the order for them to strike back. That is so crazy. But I, I mean, looking at the timeline, those cyber attacks would have had to like come together really quickly, right? I mean, it's funny because so many Americans view Putin and Russia as being super organized and well-informed and, uh, you know, capable of carrying out these intricate, long-running plots that have been planned out to a T. But this almost makes it seem like they were just winging it. Yeah, and I think to a certain extent, they they actually were. And, and that doesn't mean Putin and Russia don't actually pose dangers to the U.S. and to democracy in general. But, 
you know, whether it was the result of a long and careful plotted attempt or or just something they managed to pull together on the fly, the Russians did interfere with our election and, and by doing that undermined faith in our institutions and mm-hmm. the plan really worked. And that's something worth keeping in mind in all of this. And it's actually something that Julia Iofi points out in her Atlantic article. She writes, Putin pulled off a spectacular geopolitical heist on a shoestring budget, about $200 million, according to former director of national intelligence, James Clapper. The point is lost on many Americans. The subversion of the election was as much a product of improvisation and entropy as it was of a long range vision. What makes Putin effective, what makes him dangerous is not strategic brilliance, but a tactical flexibility and adaptability a willingness to experiment, disrupt, and to take big risks. I mean, that that sounds right to me. Even something like running for a third presidential term showed that willingness in him. And don't get me wrong, the Russian constitution allows for a third term so long as it isn't served consecutively. But since the document itself only dates back to the early 90s, Putin's actually the first to make use of that allowance. And of course, there were many people in Russia who were totally uncomfortable with this and felt that a third term actually violated the spirit of the Constitution. And Russia's 2012 election was controversial in other ways, too. So rampant reports of electoral fraud pointed to everything from, like, stuffed ballot boxes to supporters being bused to different precincts to vote. I mean, it was crazy. Well, and and those reports only seem more credible in light of the results, right? I I think, didn't Putin get something like 60% of the vote that year? Yeah, 64% officially. But there was a poll that came out that said 57% of Russians believed a person should be limited to two presidential terms in total. Wait, so if Russia allows two consecutive terms before you have to sit one out, does that mean Putin is running for president again this year? Yeah, the the election's next month, actually. But since Putin winning is such a sure thing, he didn't even declare that he was running for re-election until last December. And honestly, he probably won't even bother campaigning. You know, for a second, I I almost envied the Russian public for not having to sit through these never-ending presidential campaigns. (laughs) But I mean, I guess it's not worth it if it's at the cost of actual democratic choice. But all right. Well, it sounds like Putin is pretty much a lock for another six year term. So is there any upside to this? I mean, not from where I'm sitting, uh, unless you count the fact that a fourth term essentially rules out a fifth one since, you know, the Constitution prevents him from running three times in a row. And he'd be 77 years old by the time his next chance rolls around. Uh, I don't think I would count Putin out yet. I mean, you've seen him on that horse. I think he'll be ready when he's <laughs> 77. But it, it does make you wonder, like, what is a post-Putin Russia going to look like? I mean, he's basically been at the wheel of the country in its current form for most of its brief existence. So what happens when he's finally gone? Yeah, so that's the thing, right? No one's actually sure. His his style of leadership doesn't actually allow much room for legacy building or you know, any plans of succession. And he's so focused on his own survival and staying in power and also maintaining this appearance of legitimacy that there isn't really much time to think about how the country will get along in the future without him. As one of uh, Putin's allies in government put it, quote, we don't have a tradition of, okay, you serve two terms and you leave. We have no other tradition but to hold out to the end and leave feet first. Yeah, which is such a dangerous system. And when you think about it, because How can you ever make real progress when your leader is perpetually bracing for a coup? Right. It's it's almost like all of Putin's hardwired nationalism and his fondness for those glory days of Soviet rule have actually set the country up to repeat the same mistakes it made in the 20th century. 
Well, I mean, I hope not for the sake of the Russian people, but you're probably right in that situation. And actually, Julia came to a similar conclusion in her Atlantic article that we were talking about earlier. And it kind of sums up what we've been talking about pretty nicely. And so so she writes, ironically, Putin has laid the groundwork for exactly the kind of chaotic collapse that he spent his political life trying to avoid, the kind of collapse that gave rise to his own reign. He has made himself a hostage to a system he built with his own hands. Well, I mean, it actually makes me feel a little better after so many months of hearing about how Putin's undermining the U.S. Yeah, I know what you mean, obviously. And another thing that helps is this word replacer extension that I found for my web browser. So whenever <laughs> the word Putin appears in an article, it automatically gets converted to Pooty Poot <laughs> because that was uh, George W. Bush's nickname for him. <laughs> All right. Well, you should have saved that for the fact off mango. Actually, for, for today's fact off, I, I think we agreed to focus on some of the more interesting publicity stunts that were pulled off by Putin over the years. Are you still game for that? Definitely. So we mentioned his horseback riding earlier, but there are a few other bizarre animal stunts staged to show Putin's love of animals. So back in 2010, a photo surfaced of Putin trying to help in the tracking of polar bears as a threatened species. The photos of Putin actually putting a tracking device on a polar bear's neck. But I don't actually think that's my favorite story of Putin helping out animals. There was an effort to save a population of Siberian white cranes. And as an article in TheWeek.com puts it, quote, Putin donned a puffy white jumpsuit last year and boarded a motorized hang glider to lead a flock of endangered Siberian cranes on their winter migratory path. I mean, who does that? It's just a real, takes a real champ to a just real fly hero. with the birds. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so crazy. Well, Putin has been quoted as saying that one way for Russia to build a greater political dominance in the world is for the population to get bigger. And that families in Russia should have at least three kids, you know, for for every single family. And my favorite move he used to inspire people to get on with their baby making is that he reportedly called on none other than the beautiful singing voices of boys to men. And they had uh, they actually had a concert there in Moscow. And so I, I don't know, that probably did the trick, wouldn't you think? <laughs> they are pretty sexy. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> apparently uh, Boys to Men wasn't the only ones performing there. Uh, back in 2010 at a charity event in St. Petersburg, Putin himself decided to perform, and for some reason he sang uh, Fats Domino's Blueberry Hill in it. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. In the audience were celebrities like Sharon Stone, Kevin Costner, and while most of his stunts seemed to be faked, this one was apparently real. I actually looked that one up, and uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty accurate, but it's, it's just so <laughs> weird to watch, and why he chose a Fats Domino song, like, it's just such a weird thing. Just puts people well, in the it, mood. <laughs> it, I guess so. Well, in a different kind of stunt, I did like when Putin proposed that Steven Seagal, like, yes, action man Steven Seagal, that he should become this intermediary in the communication between the U.S. and Russia. So apparently Putin and Seagal are buddies. And so when I, I love this reaction that when Obama got word of this recommendation, his only response was just, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> That's so good. So did you ever hear the story about Patriots owner Bob Kraft and his interaction with Putin? No, I didn't. So this is back in 2005, and a group of American business execs met with Putin for some reason. And in the meeting, Kraft was showing Putin his most recent Super Bowl ring. And reportedly, like, Putin just tried the ring on and then put it in his pocket and walked out of the room. <laughs> wow. And, of course, the media was all over it, right? And people assumed Kraft had not really intended to gift the ring. But the next day, Kraft released a statement saying, 
The Russian president was clearly taken with its uniqueness. At that point, I decided to give him the ring as a symbol of the respect and admiration that I have for the Russian people and the leadership of President Putin. I can't imagine that that would have been his reaction and pretty much anybody's reaction from that. <laughs> Wait, so why are you lighting a candle and what is that smell? <laughs> well, that, sir, is the smell of Vladimir Putin, apparently. And I, I found this on Amazon and it's a Vladimir Putin scented candle. So, so let me just let me just read the description here. It says, have you ever wished that there were a way to capture the scent of Vladimir Putin so you could have the pleasure of smelling him whenever you wanted? Well, now there is. And it's this candle. But you probably already figured that out. The Putin scented candle combines notes of pine, earth and the smoke billowing from cities of your enemies. It's a manly fragrance designed to evoke the essence of Vladimir Putin and eliminate the smell of political dissidents from your home. Housed in a 16-ounce tin container that features a shirtless photo of Vladimir Putin on the lid, the Putin-scented candle makes the perfect confusing housewarming present or inappropriate baby shower gift. So I'm not sure if this is an officially sanctioned Putin-smelling candle, but whatever. I mean, this is awesome. <laughs> it is weird, but I have to give it to you. I, I, I think with that scent, you've overpowered me, and, and I have no choice but to give you this week's trophy. It is a pretty overpowering scent. I think I'm going to blow this out if you don't mind. But, uh, thank you very much. It is an honor. Well, listeners, I'm sure we forgot some pretty incredible facts about Putin or Russia or the former Soviet Union. If you'd love to share those with us, we would love to hear them. You can always email us at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. You can also call us on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right.
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.